Coming up on today's show, Hockey Canada's culture of silence once again back in the spotlight. A group of Canadian farmers pushing the government to be involved in discussions on funding plans for the next five years. And Canada is hooked on real estate. It's been a great investment. And now we're saying it's been such a good investment, people can't afford it. The federal government is freezing Hockey Canada's funding until that organization signs up with a new federal agency that has the power to receive and investigate abuse complaints and issue sanctions for inappropriate behavior. This um, not entirely surprising because this has been a story that's made its way to Ottawa and into the House of Commons. It all goes back to an incident in 2018 and Hockey Canada's handling of sexual assault allegations against a number of players on the 2018 national junior team. Um, Back then, it was a gala, apparently, that followed the team's gold medal win that year in London, Ontario, and a woman claimed that she had been sexually assaulted in her hotel room by at least eight members of that team. It it was settled by Hockey Canada, and now the questions are, how was it settled? There's taxpayer money that goes to Hockey Canada. Why was it settled? Why was it kept quiet? Uh, As I say, it made it into the House of Commons. Justin Trudeau was talking about it uh, earlier this week. Mr. Speaker, as a government, we have continually stood up to push back against sexual misconduct and harassment uh, in organizations and workplaces across the country. And Hockey Canada is no different. Organizations and people in leadership positions must do their utmost and take decisions to end this culture and trivialization of sexual violence in sport. It's why we commissioned the financial audit to shed light on the use of public funds. We want to get to the bottom of this and all options are being considered to determine the next steps. Uh, This behaviour is unacceptable, Mr. Speaker. And it's not just the Trudeau government. Three Conservative critics issued a joint statement on the matter on Tuesday saying that while Canadians glorify hockey players, quote, we can never do that at the expense of our children, our sons and daughters and put in jeopardy our loved ones. So this, once again, is another issue that has come to light in terms of what does it say about our game? And I think it's it's fair to call Canada's game hockey. And we know that this is just the latest in a, in a series of stories that put a lot of people, you know, um, on guard when it comes to hockey and the culture surrounding it. So let's get into that discussion now and find out exactly what we need to do. I know a lot of work's been done, but obviously not enough. We're going to chat with Alison Sandmeyer-Graves, who is the CEO of Canadian Women in Sport. Alison, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Good morning. As I say, these stories, you know, they're, they're not new, unfortunately. We know they're not new. Um, I know there's been a lot of work around dealing with this kind of misconduct, especially at the minor levels. Um, but like it or not, you know, it's, it's coming up in the House of Commons and you hear the Conservatives and you hear the Prime Minister all talking about the culture um, and the concerns that people have. If you're a parent with a child in not just hockey, but any activity, this has to raise alarm bells, right? This is the kind of thing that you dread hearing about. Absolutely. And I would say, really, this is just the most recent example yeah. of this and not not necessarily unique to hockey either. Uh, but I would say that this is an extreme example of gender-based violence. And my concern really goes to the victim and anybody else for whom this situation brings up trauma. Certainly, this was a life-changing event for her. And I think it's rightly shocking to people to imagine that there may never be consequences for the for the men, the young men who are involved. Um the fact is that gender-based violence is prevalent in society and in sport. Uh, when you look at Stats Canada, 30% of all women, 15 and over, have been sexually assaulted outside of a relationship at least once since they were 15 years old. 
that's really troubling. That's and crap. and in sport, we see that um, you know certainly abuse abuse and harassment and discrimination are experienced by all genders. Um, but again, women are most impacted, are experience it most. So while we're seeing a lot of progress, and I, I want to leave listeners with certainly not a not a sense that that sport is an unsafe place for yeah. their children, but but there's work to be done. For sure. I think you make an excellent point. Like I say, I, I, I coached in minor hockey for, for years and years and years and years and years. And I know I've seen firsthand the work that has been done with all kinds of training, all kinds of rules. I mean, it, it, it's a focus. If you're involved in minor hockey, at least, you know, when I was in the associations I was with, it was a focus and it was talked about all the time. So work has been done and, and I think it, we have made progress. But like you say, um, Clearly, there's a lot more work left to do. I mean, that, that's the focus. What, how do we, get, how do we um, continue to move that needle? I don't, obviously, it hasn't moved far enough, but what needs to be done? What is being done? Sure. Well, I would say that uh, uh, there's well, certainly a lot of conversation, a lot of effort on this. I was just together with other national sport leaders a couple of weekends ago, and this was, again, the major topic of conversation. There's two, there's two usual ways that this gets looked at. One is, how do we respond when abuse happens? And the other one is, how do we prevent it in the first place? Which is, I think, what what most people want to see happen. Certainly what we're seeing with the Hockey Canada uh, case right now is, you know, people saying that the response was totally inadequate. This was not the right way to handle this. And frankly, this is something that the government and others have been focused on, on fixing because that is a situation that's been happening across all sports a lot of conflict of interest, right? So mm-hmm. when uh, when someone within the sport environment experiences harm, historically the only place that they really had to report it, if not the police, was back into the sport organization who has a lot at stake in these situations. And that conflict of interest has led leaders in sport organizations to fundamentally mishandle a lot of these cases. Uh, so the government of Canada has implemented requirements that you have to have independent management of these cases. It cannot, it cannot be the responsibility of the CEO of the sport or of the national sport or what have you to look at these. It has to be totally at arm's length. And they've gone even further at the national level to establish a new entity called Abuse-Free Sport, which launched just this week. This is the one that the government is now requiring Hockey Canada to sign on to. Um, and so they're going to be handling any cases like this going forward, totally at arm's length from the sports who are involved, who, you know, for whom it's their players or it's their coaches or what have you. Uh, so that's a step. But again, that only, that only really services the, the national level. There aren't effective solutions for this at, at the provincial and at the grassroots level of sport yet. Um, and so then we really need to look at prevention this right. situation was preventable. <laughs> they all are. All of these situations are preventable. And unfortunately, sport is historically a space of hypermasculinity, which often includes objectification and even subjugation or power over women. Homogenous spaces, you know, p- places where like most people sort of look alike and think alike and have the same lived experiences, such as, you know, mostly male spaces. Um, have less checks and balances on bad behavior. We need greater diversity in sport, in all sports, uh, and that will help to create more positive, safe, healthy cultures. And then you mentioned training. 
training for parents, for coaches, for athletes, it exists. Um, we just need to make good use of it and, and continue to do that training so that athletes understand consent, they understand their responsibilities, and they understand how to protect themselves too. Yeah, and, and, you know, and then we come back to culture, which is what we, we, you know, you're talking about sort of the overall umbrella term here that encompasses everything that we're talking about here is trying to change this, the culture, and, and, and all of these things work towards that. Um, I'm wondering, when we hear something like the way Hockey Canada handled this, you know, it was settled and blah, 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 um, the fact that there was no criminal involvement or criminal court involvement, anything like that, I mean, that to me is sets back that culture and it just sort of entrenches the view that some people have where, uh, you know, if you're an elite athlete, you can get away with things like this. It'll be brushed under the rug. I mean, don't we need to hold people to accountable publicly, loudly, and make sure that everybody knows this is unacceptable? Well, I would certainly agree with that statement. And I think many people would. Uh, Unfortunately, we definitely do still have a culture in our society that uh, celebrates athletes and forgives them very quickly for their transgressions. So we see this within the NHL, right? Oh, yeah, There are players that, well, the NHL, but let's be honest, (laughs) we see it in all the the major leagues um, where there are athletes who have... uh, If you can help a team win, we will overlook all kinds of bad behavior. Exactly, exactly. You can be charged with any number of offenses and people just need to wait the right amount of time before they sign them back up again. So it's, uh, and I think that sends a lot of signals, right, to people that if you're an athlete and if you're talented, uh, you can get away with stuff. There's a different set of and rules. And we know that there's a different set of rules. It's a, it's a double standard. And that's a tough, you know, these are young, impressionable people, right? And they are, they are taking their cues from the adults around them and the culture around them of, like, what's, What's okay and what's not okay? Where is that line? And what are the consequences for crossing that line? And, and I think that we need to, to, you know, we can love sport and we can celebrate how much good it creates in people's lives, in our communities, and acknowledge that this is not okay and this, this needs to happen. And that holding athletes accountable, holding anybody, not, I yeah, don't want exactly, to suggest yeah. it's only athletes, holding people accountable and them experiencing the consequences you know, that's how our society functions best. Yeah, And, and it, if it means that, they, you know, their athletic career or their career is impacted, you know, that those are the, the choices we live with. But Allison, it, it, it's, it's for the good of the game. That's what makes the game better, too. I mean, for goodness sake, you're hurting yourself by not stepping up and, and making it a bigger deal. You're really not. Yeah. Yeah. Allison, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's Allison Sandmeyer Graves who is CEO of Canadian Women in Sport. And that's what, that's what upsets me about this, is a guy who loves the game and loves minor sport and has been involved with it for a really long time and knows firsthand the work that these organizations and these associations are doing to make it safe and inclusive and inviting. And, and then you see a story like this at the highest level, the World Junior Championship hockey team acting like this, and it gets brushed under the rug. And it seems to me, in a way, all the hard work we do at the grassroots level gets sullied by this.
going to have an interesting conversation here. Coming up next month, I believe it's the 20th of July, um, various levels of government across our country are coming together to negotiate something called the Agriculture Policy Framework. And basically what that does is lay out what the federal government or all the governments are going to do in terms of spending for agriculture in Canada for the next five years. So it's pretty big time. It's pretty important, and there's obviously going to be a number of groups that want to have their voices heard, and we're going to chat with one of them. Uh, The group we're talking to is called Farmers for Climate Solutions, and they want to make sure that their voices are heard, and they've got a series of recommendations. So let's get into this and find out exactly what the situation is. We're chatting with John Kolk, who is owner of Kolk Farms in Iron Springs and Farmer for Climate Solutions member as well. John, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Good morning, Jane. Okay. Good to be uh, good to be on. Hey, right off the top here, tell me about this group, Farmers for Climate Solutions. Um, who's in it? What's it about? And how long has it been around? Well, it's it's, uh, it's, it's been around probably for a few years now. Um, it's it's a group of about twenty thousand farmers uh, that range from uh, organic farmers to conventional farmers across the country, uh, animal agriculture as well as uh, Cropping and uh, and some of the special uh, special crops like orchards and and uh, you know so it, it touches across agriculture and across the country, but it's not one uh, it's not one single commodity. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, I mean, when we talk about climate change and what we're seeing with severe weather and all the rest, I mean, you want to talk about front lines? That's agriculture, right? <laughs> when when you're working when you're working outside, you know the weather's going <laughs> to impact you. That's right. And we're already yeah. seeing some instances. I mean, we, we, we know what happened last summer with the heat dome and the droughts and all the rest. Severe storms out east. So I mean, the examples are already there, right? It it seems like the the highs are getting higher, the lows are lower, and the wet is wetter, and the dry is drier. So you know, it. Uh, I haven't. I've only lived about sixty some years, so. I can't tell you what weather's always been like, yeah. but it seems that the last number of years, certainly on our crops, um, we can see some impacts. So you want to make sure that your voices are heard. You've, you've had some impact on this five-year funding plan, um, and it's just basically that's, that's what this comes down to, right, is making sure that, you know, you've got some input here. I mean, this is your livelihood that we're talking about. Well, and, and so we... we put together a, a study. We had some climate scientists, we had some soil people, but supervised by farmers. Sometimes programs come out that are, uh, uh, they sound good, but they don't necessarily work on the ground. So we came up with about 19 proven, what we call best management practices that could impact um, agriculture. And, and what they would do is either reduce emissions, nitrous oxide or, or methane, or they will sequester carbon um, by use of cover crops or pulses. So here's uh, 19 different uh, proven opportunities, but all of them take a bit of risk. So some of them cost some more money to get involved with. And what we're saying is when we're planning for the next five years and agriculture needs to do its share, mm-hmm. um, how can we get, uh, we, we need to get a little bit of, of risk sharing with the public. Um, so farmers will take risks, but, you know, uh, it takes a bit of an incentive to, to change some of these 
practices or to buy the equipment that we need or the technology we need to change practices. So we can't go through all 19 recommendations, obviously, John, but is there any that stand out as sort of like, hey, this this is sort of our bedrock. Like, if you're going to do something, take a look at these two or three. Probably the... One of the biggest ones would be, how can we reduce nitrogen use and still maintain our cropping? So um, using some technology on nitrogen, the, the, the trick is that we put the right amount of nitrogen at the right time in the right place. So where the roots can use it, where it doesn't go into the air, and when the crop needs it. So that's probably one of the quickest um, most efficient ones, and farmers are already trying to do that because fertilizer prices came up so much in the last year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd all like to drop our usage. Here's some technology that can help us drop the usage, uh, but put some incentives in place in the new policy framework that will drive that practice uh, widely across the prairies and across uh, across Canada. Help me understand exactly what the ask is of the government. We've made these 19 recommendations. Is it is it strictly funding? Is it uh, getting out of the way in some areas? Is it helping out? I mean, how does the government help you take this report that you've got and put it into action? The, the big thing is that, well, there's two sides. There's one, the incentive. So if, uh, if I'm taking on a uh, cover crop, for instance. So I seed something in the in the ground that's not a crop that I'm going to produce, but it keeps green roots and live uh, live uh, plants for a longer period of time. It's going to cost me forty or fifty dollars an acre to do that. Now, I think if we do it for three, four, or five years, we'll be at the point where we say, "Hey, this actually makes sense." But right now, to take the risk, I need somebody to put a little bit in front because I'm not sure it's going to work. Um, and, well, I think it can work. We just don't know how it's going to work at my farm and on my location. So that's, that's one example. Yeah. That, you know, if they were putting $40 an acre towards that uh, over the next five years, and that was picked up across the prairies, um, and we would see a significant reduction in carbon that escapes into the environment, and we would add to the amount of carbon that we put into the ground that that helps uh, reduce the impacts of climate change. How big of an impact can you reasonably think this could make? I mean, if, if everything came to pass and all your recommendations were adopted, um, how big of a difference do you think it makes? Because like you say, you, you guys are facing it on all fronts right now when it comes to input costs and weather and I mean, all of it, right? So how big of a change are you hoping to, you could possibly affect in the next four or five years? We're, we're targeting, if, uh, if we have the uptake and, and the, uh, the dollars that are asked for and, and the program gets covered across the country, we see it's reasonable to expect about a 14% reduction or uh, or sequestration of the impact of carbon production in agriculture. Now, to put that in context, about 14% of the carbon between 10 and or 12 and 15% of the carbon uh, gases that are produced in Canada are produced by agriculture. So, if we can reduce that component, 
we're going to be doing our part towards moving towards a more net zero world by 2050 and will certainly help uh, Canada meet some of their goals by 2030. So, John, is this how you're going about getting your voices heard, getting yourselves into the media and, and having a chance to express your thoughts that way? Or is you have you been offered a seat at the table with these negotiations? Will there be a more formal way for you to actually make sure the government hears what you have to say? Well, the players at the table, of course, are the, the federal government and the provincial governments of yeah. agriculture. All of our uh, all of our ministers uh, do consult with farm groups. Um, this uh, and and so that'll happen here in Alberta, and it'll happen across the prairies. But getting the knowledge of the opportunity out is what's important. Sometimes they say, oh, what can we do about this? Well, here is practical, proven, cost-effective ways of reducing agriculture's um, impact. And and so, yeah, we want to be at the table. Yes, we want to have the public saying, hey, we like to, um, we like to see the, the agricultural sector improve their practices, um, whether you're a consumer or, or a buyer in overseas, uh, they all want to know if we're doing a good job. Yeah. And uh, this is allowing the Canadian government and the provincial governments an opportunity to say, hey, let's do something. Let's not talk anymore. Let's do things. Well, we'll bring you back and get some follow-up once this plan is announced and see, uh, see how you feel about the way governments responded to the things that you're saying. John, thanks so much for your time. Okay, Shay, thank you, and have a good day. You too. That is John Kolk, who is the owner of Kolk Farms in Iron Springs and also a member of Farmer for Climate Solutions. And interesting, yeah, I mean, this is a five-year spending plan being mapped out by the different levels of government here. And uh, I'm sure he's not, it's not the only group that wants to make sure government uh, has had a chance to hear what they would like to see. So uh, interesting. We'll follow up down the road. Seven point seven. The rate of inflation in our country. Highest it's been since 1983. Cost of living is something that we've talked about, well, quite a bit on the show recently, right? Talk about cost of food, up about 10%. Um, Gas prices, 50%. Um, Real estate, we've heard, you know, 20, 25%. In some markets, more than that even. So, uh, yeah, it's getting pretty tough to afford just about anything these days. Prices are soaring. When we talk about real estate, though, there's a few different categories. We talk about cost of living. We talk about the high price of housing, housing market that's become unattainable for millions and millions of Canadians. It's been a big deal for the past few years. Realistically, though, if you think about it, this is, in a way, the inevitable result of a system that has worked exactly as we designed it to do. We've talked here about how, you know, the younger people who say they can't get into a house anymore, it's just too expensive and they may end up renting or what are they missing out on? They're always told, well, it's a great investment. It's a fabulous investment. You're just throwing money away if you're renting. You got to get a house, got to get a house. You'll, You'll make money. It's your retirement. Well, if that's what we set it up to be and we're seeing the investment go up now, kind of getting what we built, right? But now we're seeing the downside, and I don't know if we didn't plan for it properly, but um, we're in a situation where we've created this, and, and now we're seeing you know, the downside of it. So to find out what we need to do to reverse this, if it can be reversed, we're going to chat with Mark Morris, who is a principal lawyer at LegalClosing.ca and operates LegalReview.ca. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. You know, real estate and, and what it's become, and, and as you know, it's it's a major talking point right now with the soaring price of housing. Um, it's not crazy. I mean, for a while, we, we've been setting up a system where it's a great investment. You're going to see a huge return. I mean, we've sort of built this to be what it is today, right? Oh, we totally have. I mean, since World War II, Canadian government policy has been to promote a house as the ideal investment for an average Canadian. And so it's really no surprise that Canadians with assets or money, and even those without, flood on into real estate. Our tax system is designed around promoting real estate. Uh, Young Canadians, old Canadians, everyone's invested in real estate. I mean, it's really the only business where you can enter into it and still accept, expect to get government rates. I've, I've run quite a few businesses in my career um, and employed countless Canadians, uh, mainly GTA Canadians. That's where I'm based. Um, and I can tell you that when I go to the bank and ask them for money that is not secured by real estate, they look at me and laugh, regardless of what my track record is in previous business or what my track record is in my business. And that's a direct uh, reaction to the fact that everything that we have in Canada, whether it be government policy, bank lending, or anything else, is all predicated upon the security of a real estate home. So what have we overlooked? What have we, I guess, neglected or not fostered or not encouraged? What have we missed out on by having such a focus on real estate? Well, I mean, look, real estate is definitely a vibrant aspect of the economy. And, and, and I don't want to knock it too much. There's a whole lot of people who work with their hands in the trades. And uh, there's ancillary industries that are built around in real estate. And people can make a very good living on real estate. But real estate is not the only component of our economy. And especially in the neck of the woods where I live in Ontario, it has become really the driving force of everything. The truth is an economy is usually much more than just where people live. In Ontario, we have a thriving tech sector. We had a thriving, we still do have a thriving manufacturing sector. You guys have oil and gas. There are any number of other areas that the government and that we should be concerned with. And when you pump dollars into one aspect to and favor one aspect of the economy, you are necessarily removing dollars from those other perhaps even more innovative areas. Um, and it is a problem that has been built not in the course of just the past couple of years, but rather in the course of the past half century. So, I mean, now we're sitting at a situation where we have record low unemployment. In fact, we have a bit of a labor market crisis, right? Not a lot of jobs, as you say. I mean, when you talk about real estate, yeah, sure, there's some some ancillary jobs around there. But in terms of building business um, and making that sort of a focus of government, um, or at least finding a balance between the two, I mean, we might be in a different situation had we not focused so heavily on real estate. Totally. I mean, look, uh, the example I gave in, in, in an article that I wrote yesterday is this. Um, So there's something called the CCPC, which in English means the Canadian Controlled Private Corporation. So a small corporation that someone sets up in order to establish a business. When someone is successful in and and has owned shares of a CCPC for two years and sells them, they presently get $850,000 of that. It's a lifetime capital gains exemption that they get on the sale of that those shares. And that's great. That sounds wonderful. But... 
if you are trying to start a business and actually doing out your math, you're going to say, well, I have this one-time capital gains exemption of $850,000, or I, as a Toronto resident, can buy a simple house, employ no one, simply sit on it, and make an $850,000 gain, which, because I'm living there, will be tax-free due to my capital residence exemption. And I could do that over and over and over again. And if that's the case, the real question we should be asking is, okay, housing is important, but it's being done by a whole, bunch, a whole bunch of entrepreneurs are now looking at our economy and saying, well, why would I? Why would I do that? Why would I not take the easy way out if the money is the same and if I get the same exemptions and everything else? We are not prioritizing innovative business. We are not prioritizing people who are ready to establish business and work with people and employ Canadians. And that is really, to my mind at least, um, maybe, maybe an economist will tell me I'm wrong, but I don't think they will, that is the measure of a vibrant economy uh, and a diverse economy that relies on more than just real estate to foster its bottom line. So what do we need to do? I mean, how do we break this, you know, uh, this pattern? Because like you say, we, we've built it this way for a very, very long time. How do we sort of change the course? Well, you have to do it slowly and gradually. Firstly, uh, the right way to do it is not to impose massive amounts of new taxation on people and change the game and pull the rug. You can't do that. People have relied on this. People have built you know, their careers and their, their investment strategies on this and everything else. It starts with the realization that our economy can be better than it is if we perhaps start um, promoting other areas of our economy. And with that realization, uh, government policy starts to shift. Mm-hmm. So as an example, instead of worrying um, perhaps as much about uh, our, whether or not the principal residence exemption needs to be extended or the NRST tax here in Ontario or anything else, we can start concentrating on, say, lowering corporate tax or lowering uh, the cost of new businesses that are starting and creating new jobs and taking those risks. And it is only through a decade-long effort or decades-long effort to shift slowly away from the dependency on real estate that we can actually grind ourselves off. Because the right answer, surely, is not to cut everyone cold turkey who has been promised this by governments years over and are relying on this for their retirement. You can't do that. It has to rather be that instead of the preponderance of policy that comes out that always uh, ameliorates and, and, and accedes to um, real estate demand, we start paying attention to other businesses that are employing Canadians and concentrating our dollars there. With time, if we do that in a sustained way, we will find that we are gradually shifting our attention and our, and our dollar focus uh, to those more productive industries. I mean, it's an interesting uh, premise. It's an interesting idea. I mean, I, I'm sure there's going to be people who say that uh, it's a great idea and we should be more focused on business. There's going to be other people that say, you know, business should make it on their own. Like you say, it's going to have to be incremental because you're not talking just about a change in government policy, but also perception among the public in, in reevaluating what we need to be focused on as a society. It's going to be a big change. Totally. And, and, and to be clear, like, you know, to answer your question directly and without perhaps just delving into these huge, like, hey, we have to all work together. Yeah, let's let's yeah. talk about something specific for a minute. Right now, our government policies don't differentiate between you and your family who are going ahead and purchasing their first home or their family home. And for the main, 
There's some exceptions. And for the main, someone who's buying an income property, meaning that there is a clear distinction between someone who is hoarding properties. I wouldn't say hoarding. They may be investors or whatever it is. Maybe that was the wrong word. But there is a clear distinction between someone who is living in a house for their family where their kids are going to school and everything else and someone who is engaged in the business of real estate and owning property. Yeah. Why do I, maybe the right way to begin our transit change is not to affect people's homes at all, but rather to say, hey, what part of our policies designed for individual homeowners are actively being used by those people in the renting space? And as you say, it's a business, let them fly. Yeah. No problem. This is not, this is not where, you know, we're raising our kids. And perhaps we should be looking at those areas where CMHC is massively supporting apartment buildings at the present time, right? The CMHC insurance exists, believe it or not, for these units that have, you know, 300 people living inside. You can get CMHC insurance for that. Really? You're right. It's a business. Why is the government involved in that? Why not use those dollars instead for more productive ends within other cycles of the economy? These are the questions. I'm not saying to you that this should be done. I'm saying these are the questions that need to be addressed that are never addressed because housing is the third rail of our economy. I'm going to be honest. I had no. I thought CMHC was primarily for people who couldn't qualify for big down payments, and I didn't think it applied to like apartment buildings and commercial real estate at all. I'm surprised by that. Well, surprise, surprise, surprise. I didn't say commercial real estate. Well, it's yeah, I mean rental rent, units rent, and that sort of thing. But, it, but, it, but for all intents and purposes, the Canadian that looks at it would say, well, a multi-unit apartment building is, is commercial by my eyes, even though the tax code kind of sees it as something a bit different because it's still exempt surplus. And that's a very boring subject that we can leave for another day, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's an interesting conversation. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Mark. We'll chat again. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate being on. Thank you very much. Mark Morris, principal lawyer at LegalClosing.ca and runs and operates LegalReview.ca and saying, you know what, we've built this addiction to real estate and we've sort of built it up into what it is and um, now we're paying the price for it. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.